Well, thank you. Thank you, Taylor. And thank you so much, Pinky. That was really informative. And uh, I have to say that that uh, urinary issues are always a very difficult topic to tackle uh, in, in Parkinson's uh, patients. And, and that I'd have to confess uh, many of us uh, neurologists, including movement disorders uh, specialists, uh, uh, are not really that well-versed in, in tackling uh, urinary issues in Parkinson's. So I, I just have a few questions here that were submitted beforehand, and some of them are really interesting and some are, are quite intriguing. Um, one of the things you just mentioned was avoid just in case peeing. Does that apply also to going to the bathroom before you sleep? So um, by just in case peeing, we mean that during the daytime, the nighttime is a planned activity. We know that you know, ideally we'd like to sleep uh, during the course of the night. Most people have had dinner approximately three hours or four hours before bedtime. And so it's good to empty the bladder so that, um, so that would count as planned peeing rather than just in case. Just in case is that uh, we've gone use the bathroom and then we are planning to leave the house or we just, you know, see a bathroom on the way and we say, okay, well, let's just use it. But then the bladder doesn't get trained to store. Now, suppose we know we are going to be out of the house for two hours with or a long drive and uh, we may not have access to a bathroom. Then, yes, definitely we should use the restroom, even if it's not two hours since last void, because then that's again planning. But just in cases, oh, I'm crossing, there's a bathroom there, let me just use it because who knows if I might need to just go again. So if we have access to a bathroom, we want to go every two hours. But if we don't know whether we'll have access to a bathroom within the next two hours, then it makes sense to use it before that. Yeah. What is your feel about the frequency of urinary issues in men versus women with Parkinson's? Who do you think is more prone to urinary issues? Uh, I see it in both. I think it's a little easier for women to, um, you know, for, again, there are coexisting issues, right? For women, there will be childbirth issues, hormonal issues, which can make the pelvic floor a little bit lax. For men, there can be some prostate issues. So a lot really depends on what the coexisting conditions are. So I see it in both. I think for women, uh, sometimes they, it's a little easier for them to use protection. And so they can, you know, they're a little bit more liable to use protection. And so it sometimes becomes less of an issue. For men, uh, sometimes they're not so used to using protection. They're a little bit hesitant to use it. Uh, so it can sometimes, even though the frequency might be the same, it becomes a little bit of a bigger hassle to them. And then for your for your male, male patients with Parkinson's with urinary issues, especially those with overactive bladder or going to the bathroom frequently during the day or, or during the evening, do you routinely send these patients to the urologist for workup for uh, benign prostatic hypertrophy or enlargement of their prostate? Is that something that we should routinely do. So what I do is I ask my patients whether uh, during their last primary physical, whether they had a prostate exam, or if they have an annual uh, 
tell them that can you have your primary renal prostate checked? And if they said yes, it was checked, or my primary routinely checks my prostate, then I don't necessarily send to the urologist. Or I'll just have them like ask your primary whether you need to see a urologist to get the prostate checked. And if the primary is comfortable just monitoring the prostate, they don't have to see a urologist. Because there can be specialist overburden too, like how many specialists do you see? And there's problems commuting, et cetera. So if the, if the primary is keeping an eye on the prostate, then I don't send to the urologist. But if the primary detects that, yes, there is a prostate issue, and now the overactive bladder is increasing, then I'll typically get the urologist involved. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I, one of the things that, I, that was a, a great take home for me uh, from your talk is, is, is the pelvic exercises and, and Kegel. You know, I, 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 it's been a while since I've thought about these this exercises and their existence. And I, uh, are you aware of physical therapists that are really specialized in doing this? I mean, most of the time I just send my patients to general physical therapists that do big and loud and I say, you know, they're experts in Parkinson's, but the honest truth is I, I have yet to think of one therapist that I work with that says, yep, I, you know, kind of can help their patients with urinary issues and Parkinson's. So are they difficult to find? Yeah, so actually the, you know, the slides that I showed um, were from Amy Trock and they are physical therapists who actually run our pelvic floor clinic. Really? <laughs> So, and typically what happens is that they, uh, the therapists are also treating uh, women after pregnancy. So, you know, they end up with this, so they're seeing women after delivery who are having bladder issues. And then they've, that's how their interest started in the first place. And then they become so much of a specialist in bladder issues that they start treating people with bladder conditions, with MS or with Parkinson's disease. So pelvic floor um, kind of, they, and they tend also to have a little ultrasound machine where they can see if patients have like bladder retention. Yeah. So, and a lot is, suppose even if there are centers that don't have pelvic floor kind of specialists, which is the typical norm, even in those patients, if they just see a therapist who works on core strength, there can be a lot of duplication of uh, the muscles that are strengthened. So it's still worth seeing a physical therapist for core strength building. Yeah. And then, you know, one of the more common things that I see you know, in my Parkinson's patients that I always suspect, especially if they get confused, they, uh, their Parkinson's seems to be worse and there's no good explanation for it would be urinary tract infections. So uh, do you feel, do you think that Parkinson's patients are more prone to developing UTIs? So, you know, just with, with time, people become uh, more prone to urinary tract infection that also tends to be sort of the same age. So as uh, in women, hormonal levels fall, you know, the plug, the mucosal plug, uh, becomes a little less dense, so it's possible for bacteria to climb. And uh, then as people do start using protection, that also can sometimes make people more prone to urinary tract infection. So, and, you know, with Parkinson's, if there are less mobility, if there are mobility issues, and sometimes people will dehydrate themselves. So if someone's thinking, oh, I might be off or, 
you know, I may have a hard time going to the bathroom. I don't have help right now. They may just dehydrate themselves. And if you dehydrate yourself, yes, that makes people more prone to UTI. So having some Parkinson's, having Parkinson's, yes, it may make people more prone to UTI in indirect fashions. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and you were right that if someone calls and says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm or a spouse calls saying, oh, you know, uh, my, uh, my significant other or whatever is uh, more confused or but last two, three days have been very bad and it's confused and hallucinating, even in the absence of fever or even if the urine is not smelling or looking any different, it's always worth checking for urinary tract infection. And sometimes, you know, it's possible to buy these home dipsticks. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're easy, right? in the clinic. You can buy them Good. over the counter. So it could be handy having some of those in the clinic and just dip, uh, uh, having those at home and check if there's some flaw, you know, a big infection, it'll show up on the dipstick. Yeah, yeah. You know, many of my patients who, who tend to go to the bathroom a lot, either during the day or during the night, tend to underhydrate uh, themselves because they're afraid to go to the bathroom, right? And so, and so many of my patients uh, end up having either, you know, dehydration and drops in blood pressure, or as you just mentioned, they become more prone to urinary tract infections. So like, it's kind of a difficult balance uh, of, of having too much fluids and, uh, and too little fluids. Is, is, do you have any game plans on, on how to make it a win-win, given that these are two opposing things? Right. So it's reflex that people think, well, if I don't drink, then I'm not going to go, so that takes care of the problem. But, the, but most of our blood is made from water, right? And right. Our, so, so much of our body is just made of water that we cannot dehydrate ourselves because then there'll be drop in blood pressure, we'll get dizzy, we'll fall. So we have to hydrate. Now, the way to hydrate smartly is to hydrate from the time you wake up right. to about four hours before bedtime. So about four hours before bedtime, after that is just sips of water. It's not like cups of water. So the six to eight hours, the six to eight cups of water has to be from whenever, like six or seven, eight a.m. till o'clock, six p.m., which is when most people are starting to wind down for the night. Avoid a glass of wine at night because that will irritate the bladder. Avoid caffeine in the evening, which will keep you up and will irritate the bladder. And then during the daytime when you are hydrating, try every two hours to be approx approximately every two hours to be using the bathroom. And uh, sometimes the way to keep an eye on the hydration is that uh, every time you have a meal, and if you are taking Parkinson's meds, you know, at a minimum, they tend to be three times a day, generally, at a minimum. So every time you take your pills, Instead of with a sip of water, have it with a cup of water. So if you have a cup of water with, uh, with your pills and a cup of water with every meal, that generally is enough. And so, and then if you have any pills to take at bedtime, mm -hmm. that needs to be just with a sip of water, not a cup of water. And then if they wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, uh, they encourage them to drink a little Fluids, just, a sip, just a sip because the mouth can be dry. So have a little sip of water, but not a full glass full because otherwise two hours later. Exactly, <laughs> right? right. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what is your experience with the Parkinson's medicines in terms of their effect on this overactive bladder and frequency of urination and nocturia or going to the bathroom at night? What, what is your experience? So, uh, you know, the data is all mixed. Some have noted that, yes, if you optimize uh, with carbidopa, levodopa, mm -hmm. there will be a little less of the overactive bladder, like the detrusive muscle, you know, the bladder muscle that just keeps contracting. Sometimes it will settle down. Um, but DBS also mixed picture. So it can help. Optimizing can help, but it may not do enough. That is why one may still need these other options and the bladder and the, you know, exercise. Exercise definitely is the best. Core strength is the best. Optimized PD dosing is good. May or may not be enough. But if your, if your uh, PD meds are optimized, you can likely exercise better, maintain your core strength better. When you go to the bathroom, you're able to likely make it walking at a comfortable pace rather than trying to rush. And also, it does help to have clothing that's easy to slip off and slip on. So avoid like buckles and too many zip, hard zippers or buttons. Um, better to have easy pull-up, pull-down so that you're not rushing. And it's just less hassle for everyone. And whenever you're outside, try to keep a little water with you. Commonest problem is a lot of people have a lot of juices. And, you know, most people are used to having orange juice first thing in the morning. And they tend to have a lot of tomatoes. You know, we get tomatoes in lots of forms, like pasta sauce and tomatoes are in everything. Tomatoes are irritating to the bladder. So just limit some of that citrus intake. And then um, our patients with more advanced Parkinson's, one of the hallmark of more advanced disease would be the fluctuations, right? And we usually talk about motor fluctuations. In other words, when their medicines uh, start to wear off, their levodopa starts to wear off, they get slower, they get more rigid, they have more tremors, and so on and so forth. But is there such a thing as non-motor fluctuations involving urinary symptoms? Um, non-motor, um, there's not per se defined that I know of non-motor, but during non-motor, People will, uh, even during the motor off or even the sub when they are not entirely on, mobility decreases. And due to that, people will have more accidents when they're off. Just because mechanically they cannot make it to the bathroom. Yeah. But there's not a clear cut non motor. Um, and sometimes during an off episode but it's hard sometimes to capture the frequency uh, mm -hmm. to that level of precision uh, like whether it's noted to the on or the off so in general if motor symptoms are well optimized uh, bladder will do better uh, there are more chances reports of leakages during an off episode and then, are, are, can you recommend, or are there? Are you aware of any supplements that are good for urinary health uh, for Parkinson's patients in general, or just for the general population? The general population, when I would say when I refer my patients to urologists, sometimes I've seen them prescribe azo, um, and sometimes some patients who've been uh, prone to several bacterial infections, sometimes there's like different strengths of cranberry, 
right. that prescribe. Those are the only ones that I know. Sometimes regular urinary infections. Uh, some people will get put on like antibiotics, like sometimes even long, long term. Uh, but in terms of supplements, I've only seen. And sometimes actually, if uh, just treating constipation well, um, if one is very constipated, because it's in the same area that can impact the straining, if one regularly impacts the pelvic floor health. So it's really important not to be straining when one is uh, going using the bowel, when is trying to have a bowel movement. So again, the hydration helps with that. Uh, stool softener is very helpful. Sure. Um, Senna is helpful. Uh, Miralax can be helpful for the constipation. And sometimes what happens is people will have a good bowel movement and then they'll just stop everything. And then, you know, they'll get caught in the same thing. And then two, three days later, then they have to strain and they use everything. It's very important to use the stool softeners or the fibers on an everyday basis so that you're not bagged up. Aim for a blood for a bowel movement every day, max every two days. If you go longer than that, stool becomes hard. Then it's you have to strain. If you strain, then that affects the you know the pelvic floor, and that also will cause a bladder issue. Right, right. So the the kegel maneuver is that is that does that apply both to men and women, or, or is it more doable for women versus men? because uh, you know um, ever since you know childbirth and post and pre they talk, talked about kegels but actually the pelvic floor uh, exists for both and kegels can help in both men and got it got it okay and then um, you know there's more and more interest in prodromal Parkinson's uh, especially with the advent of uh, the skin biopsy for uh, alpha synuclein, now we're, we're we're able to make the diagnosis, you know, earlier and earlier. And in fact, we're catching patients uh, even before the first motor symptom of Parkinson's comes out. So most of these patients just have dream acting. Uh, their sense of smell may be impaired. Uh, they may have mood changes. And there's a question here about in, in prodromal Parkinson's. Um, do they start to have urinary issues as well that you're aware of? So most of the literature that I've reviewed is, um, you know, the constipation we know can be prodromal, but the sure. bladder symptoms uh, tend to be actually further down. So they tend to mostly appear after motor symptoms, a few years after motor symptoms. Uh, now, again, age plays a big impact because just with age, uh, bladder control goes down. So we don't know if, know of it as a specific prodromal symptom, more, mostly a few years after onset of motor symptoms. Yeah, and, and then um, <clears throat> one of the things that, that uh, stuck in my mind in your talk is that importance to differentiate between Parkinson's and MSA multiple system atrophy. Would you think that MSA patients probably would have more prominent urinary issues like incontinence, maybe, uh, you know, much earlier than the Parkinson's population and possibly even have it in the prodromal stage? Two symptoms. One is overactive bladder. 
Like there's too much, like urinary urgency have to go more often, or it's the other way where you can't go, which right. is kind of how the prostate presents. Now in patients with MSA, it's more of the hesitancy rather than the urgency. So if some, and uh, in Parkinson's, it's atypical to have um, bladder retention. So typically how bladder retention is when empties the, has a void and right after they empty the bladder, you go and use an ultrasound machine and you see how much uh, urine is left in the bladder. In Parkinson's, typically you will not see much retention within MSA or multiple systems atrophy. There will often be post-void residual volume that's more than 30 or 50 cc's. And so in those patients, typically uh, done prostate surgery, uh, it has led to further complications and not enough uh, benefit. So that is why the important, now there is a particular way to diagnose, you can do an EMG of the sphincter of the urethral sphincter. And that has a particular different signal in Parkinson's or in MSA. It's not typically an EMG that's performed. Most of the time we are diagnosing the MSA clinically and then we are treating, uh, we have to, if someone is already having retention like in MSA, and then you treat it with these overactive bladder medications, they'll get backed up even more. So one of the, sometimes by history, or if we do the bladder ultrasound and we are finding that there's some backup, then we definitely get the urologist uh, involved. Rarely Parkinson's. Yeah, one of the, one of the uh, things that I do whenever there's some questions, especially in the early stages where, MSA and Parkinson's can overlap. And in fact, many MSA patients can present uh, very much like Parkinson's and some of them can even be levodopa responsive, quote unquote, right? Except that the levodopa responsiveness is not enduring and, and that after a few months or maybe a few years, but definitely not more than you know five years, many of these patients, uh, if not all of them will lose their response uh, to, to levodopa. So I, I usually do an autonomic study uh, if in doubt, uh, for, for many of my suspected MSA patients, I, I really don't expect you know, a lot of autonomic dysfunction in the early stages of Parkinson's, as you just mentioned, whereas in MSA, it seems to be very, very prominent. And then I think there's also, uh, there's also some talk about, being, uh, about uh, the possibility of differentiating MSA and Parkinson's through the skin biopsy. Uh, both can be positive for alpha-synuclein plus correlated alpha-synuclein, but I think the distribution of the alpha-synuclein in the skin biopsy can be different uh, in MSA. It tends to be in the so-called subepidermal plexus, which is right beneath the epidermis. That's where uh, the concentration of the alpha-synuclein is, whereas in Parkinson's patients, it's, it's in the deeper uh, layer in the autonomic uh, you know, nerves uh, in, the, in the dermis, which is, which is beneath. Uh, the epidermis. So, uh, and 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 again, I, I echo what you just said about about you know about um, the prominence of this uh, urinary uh, uh, symptoms in MSA patients, especially in the early stages. Um, um, what about deep brain stimulation? In your experience, uh, this, uh, under your your uh, set of patients, uh, do the urinary issues more tend to improve more or? remain the same or, or worsen after BBS? 
I have found that for most of my patients, it does seem to improve. Uh, overall, you know, the nighttime sleep improves because they're not wearing off at night. Now, what will happen is if people, if they're lying awake, tossing, turning, not off, even a little bit of stuff, they'll go to the bathroom. But uh, if they are sort of deeper in sleep because now they're not off, Generally, that bladder signal will need to be a lot, a lot more um, strong for them to get up and go to the bathroom. So, in general, I find that when the off time improves, as it generally does with after the brain stimulation, their bladder does tend to do better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard uh, anecdotally, and again, I don't have you know a good study to back this up, but anecdotally, I've had uh, many patients that uh, that her and polypharmacy different drugs two or three, sometimes even more for their Parkinson's. And then my goal for DBS is to really reduce the doses of medicines. And the ultimate goal is zero if possible. And that's more, that's more uh, commonly uh, occurring in patients that have earlier rather than, you know, super late uh, DBS in the course of the disease. So I've heard many of my patients say that, that their urinary symptoms, including the overactive bladder symptoms, uh, tend to improve. It makes me wonder whether you know the motor fluctuations have to do with, uh, some something to do with that versus maybe some of the medicines themselves are probably contributing. Like for instance, uh, anticholinergic drugs, I would say, uh, including maybe amantadine, which we use a lot for dyskinesias, uh, will probably favor urinary retention and, and difficulty urinating. Is, is it, do you share the same experience? Yes. Yeah, so and then just sometimes some patients will need it if the young patients in work they're having a lot of tremor and that causes a mouth some confusion so both that and amantadine uh, we can drop the doses of those after dbs so wow. that that helps too with bladder hesitancy problems right right and then one last question i have here is is dementia uh, you, do you think the urinary issues uh, are more common, like incontinence in, in demented Parkinson's patients, or it really doesn't matter whether they're demented or not? So it's a complex issue. What happens is that, yes, dementia, you know, just uh, the stage at which it happens, the bladder problems tend to come along with it. However, there's even a further interesting caveat that when we use uh, Procholinergic medications such as, say, donipazil or uh, rivastigmine uh, for affects the bladder too. And there are reports that patients who started memory medication sometimes urgency um, because they are sort of like the opposite of you know your oxidative detrol kind of uh, agents. And then sometimes, so we keep an eye when we start medications for dementia, if we see over the dose and uh, they'll have a little improvement in the overactive.